I'd like to turn to the scriptures, however, to Romans chapter 5, and today we'd like to go through Romans chapter 5, verse 6, to the end of the chapter. Rav Shaul is really getting on a roll now. He has introduced his topic, he has spoken about righteousness through faith, and he has spoken about how we have been justified through Messiah. And he's addressing these issues between the Jewish and Gentile believers in Rome. And he's reaching out to them with love and care and a pastoral heart. And he's developing these themes that he has where he wants them to really understand what God has done and how great it really is. And I'm hoping this morning as we read through Haigeret, um of Shaul al-Haromim, the epistle of Paul to the Romans, that as we read in this chapter, we might come to a greater appreciation for what God, what Hashem has done for us through Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus our Messiah, so that we might be where we are today if we are those who have put our faith in him. It is a great and wonderful thing. I'd like first to read in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 11, where Rav Shaul speaks about how Messiah died for us. It's one of the central facts, one of the central things we think about as believers. Messiah died for us. Romans 5 and verse 6. For when we were still without strength, in due time Messiah died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Messiah died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we rejoice in God through our Lord Yeshua HaMashiach, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. It's a great picture that Rav Shaul is giving us of the reconciliation between us and God that has occurred because of Yeshua's death. It's a little bit of a point of contention. It's a point of contention in this respect. Um, In the Jewish community, you will sometimes face the argument that nowhere in Judaism do we have the idea that God will atone for the sins of us, of people, through the death of a righteous person. Those who would seek to undermine our faith in Messiah Yeshua would try and tell us that nowhere in Scripture can we see this, nowhere in Jewish tradition Does it exist? In fact, they are either ignorant 
or a little bit disingenuous in this respect, those who would use this argument. For example, it's a well-known argument that Miriam's death in the Torah, where it is recited, where it is discussed, is right following the discussion of the red heifer. What was the red heifer? The red heifer was the heifer, a female cow that had to be slaughtered and, and offered up as a burnt offering so that its ashes might be used for the purification of the priests in worship. Miriam's death in tradition has been viewed as being placed right after the discussion of the red heifer so that we might know that just as the red heifer expiates sin, so too does the death of the righteous. This is an ancient view. The ancients in the time of Yeshua, as we can see from the Dead Sea Scrolls, would have the idea that their teacher of righteousness might suffer so that Israel might be brought to God. More recently in modern times, there have been theories that various people who have presented themselves or been presented as Messiah, most recently Rabbi Menachem Schneerson, that in some way their death might have atoning power. To this day, very religious Hasidic Jews will go to the, de- to the tombs of famous rabbis, some going to the tombs of rabbis in Israel who have been dead for over 1,500 years, and in those places offering prayers with the idea that somehow their prayers might have added merit on behalf, or if uttered on behalf of those rabbis. And so it should be no surprise to us that actually this is a biblical notion. In reality, God laid out the foundations of the doctrine of what we call atonement from the earliest chapters of the Tanakh, right until it is fully revealed in Yeshua HaMashiach. We begin in Bereshit, in Genesis, where we read that the, the descendant of the woman would crush the serpent's head. We already have the foundations being laid. The picture is expanded as we get into the prophets. And as we see in the prophets in Isaiah, we have one who is tightly and closely identified with Israel, called Jacob my servant, and yet is clearly not Israel itself, and is clearly one who will suffer on behalf of the people of Israel. This is Messiah. This is the one who is revealed to us in the Brit Hadashah, the one who is revealed to his disciples so that they might look at him and they would see that here is the one who has come in fulfillment, as we read in Luke, of all that the prophets have said. While we were still without strength, in time Messiah died for the ungodly. Rav Shaul uses the term Messiah almost like it's a name. I think he was doing this on purpose because Messiah was not only a title. It was not only a designation for 
for Yeshua, as in the Messiah. But he embodied everything that Messiah was and is to be. And we read here that Messiah died for the ungodly. Rav Shaul brings out a thought now that he hasn't really developed before in the book of Romans. That while we were still without strength, in time Messiah died for the ungodly. What a thought. He brings it out even further in verse 7. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. And we understand that concept. If, if we saw a child fall into a pool, we would jump in to try and rescue that child or that person who didn't know how to sit, swim. We, we would do what we could. And maybe in some situations, we would even risk our lives or even give our lives, as, as so many have in the past, to save those who were in peril. And we would do this for righteous people, but we might be less likely to do it for someone who is evil. I read in the news today about someone in, in the States who had killed six people on Christmas Eve a number of years ago, shot them all to death, and is now sentenced to life. And for someone like that, we might say, you know, I'm really not highly motivated to do something that puts my life in jeopardy for someone like that. And yet, while we were still ungodly, while we were still without strength, we were not the righteous ones. Messiah died for us. And that's an exciting and powerful thought. And he looked at us and we weren't exemplary we were ungodly, we were not following Hashem, we were living our own ways. And Rav Shaul here is writing both to Jews, some of whom have devoted their lives to following Hashem, but are nevertheless shown, as he has shown in the book of Romans, to be ungodly. And he's speaking to Gentiles who definitely know that they were ungodly because they came from ungodliness, they worshipped idols, they took part in eating idol meat. Um, they, they lived ungodly lives. They knew it. And Rav Shaul says, Messiah died for the ungodly. So God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Messiah died for us. He's really said it three times, emphasizing it, clarifying it, again and again, so we might really get the picture. We saw during the Parsha the importance of the implements in the temple or in the Mishkan, in the wilderness. And many of those implements were to do with the offering of blood before that mercy seat that Richard described to us. That mercy seat was known to all of Israel. They knew what happened there. The altar was outside where at least some could see it, and everyone knew what happened at the altars. It wasn't a clean and sanitary place particularly. It was a place where animals were offered up to God, where sacrifice was made, 
a place where the, the priests would get dirty in the work of doing what they did, so much so that their garments had to be completely thrown away every year and burned up because they would get so soiled during the course of the year. And there in that place of sacrifice, there we see the picture of Messiah's sacrifice for us. We have been, as we read in verse 9, justified by his blood, and we shall be saved from wrath through him. What a wonderful thing Messiah did for us because he became that sacrifice that suffered a death. He became the subject of that rather to our eyes and ears today, no doubt, gruesome spectacle of sacrifice. He became that sacrifice for us. And he became the one who was offered up on the altar to the Lord. So that between us and God, not between us and Jesus, but between us and God, there might be peace. He became our sacrifice. And of course, if we have peace with the Father, we have peace with the Son, Messiah, Yeshua. We were reconciled with God. So verses 10 and 11 tell us of the power of God, the power of what God has done. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. You know, in, in Judaism, there are the 13 principles for interpreting scripture. You'll find them in any prayer book. And in those per 13 principles for interpreting scripture, one of the most famous is the Calvichomer argument. If this is true, then certainly this much greater thing must also be true. Um, for example, if on a Jewish holiday, which is not given the full weight of Shabbat in the Torah most of the days, um, on a typical Yom Tov, if in Jewish thinking you are not allowed to reap, reap a harvest on that day because it's the Torah says you shall do no ordinary work on that day. Therefore, on a Yom Tov, you don't eat an apple. If it is true on this day where there's a degree of leniency, how much more so on Shabbat, where it is absolutely clear you shall not do any work. Rav Shaul uses this kind of Argument. It's in his blood. He's a rabbinic scholar, a student who sat at the feet of Gamliel. And he says, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through his son, how much more so through his life? Because Messiah did not only die, but he rose again. How much more so that we should be reconciled through him. We are given a picture of the power of what God is doing through his son, Yeshua. And more so, as a result, 
we also rejoice in God through our Adon, our Lord, Yeshua HaMashiach, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. There have been a lot of things that have happened because Yeshua gave his life. There has been atonement. There's been justification. We have been given righteousness, considered righteous by God. And all of those things result in reconciliation between us and him. There is reconciliation. The God of all the universe. There's a a number of texts in early Judaism that speak about the the place that we belong in comparison to God. One of those ancient texts talks about us belonging in the assembly of worms. And I'm not a particular advocate of what people call worm theology. But there we are down there. If God is infinitely great, the obvious conclusion is that in relation to God's infinite greatness, we are infinitely small. We are infinitely irrelevant. But not to God. God uh, created the universe according to mathematical rules, and maths is maths. But nevertheless, we are not insignificant to God. God has pursued reconciliation with us even to the point of the death of his son because he values us, he cares for us, and he loves us. And he has poured out his love. It is an amazing thing that we look at when we see the power of God's love that can overcome this infinite distance and bring us into reconciliation, not only that we might have simple peace with God, but that we might actually have a relationship with him because he cares for us, because he loves us, because his son gave his life for us. And so we turn to the next section in Romans chapter 5, and I'm going to take that as Romans 5, verses 12 to 19. In those verses, Rav Shaul interweaves two pictures. One is a man who stands for us all, or who stood for us then. And the other is a man who stands for us all now. The one is Adam, and the other is Messiah. And again, Rav Shaul is going to use this kal vachomer, this light too heavy. That's really the meaning of the Hebrew there. Uh, He's going to use this kind of argument. If this was true of Adam, How much more so is it true of Yeshua, what Yeshua has done for us? And so we read in verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, he begins by focusing on Adam, or Adam. Adam is the first man. 
In a sense, he does stand for us all. He is our ancestor. Each of us here today are descendants of Adam. And actually, because of the flood, we are also all descended from Adam via Noah or Noah. And here we are today, descendants of this man. This man who we have much reason to look at and maybe admire in some respects as our ancestor, but also with great grief realize that through him sin came into the world. Through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all have sinned. Rav Shaul is bringing up something that maybe those in the congregation in Rome who are familiar with Jewish teaching and Jewish thought would have understood. Through Adam, sin had come to all of us. And Rav Shaul has listed those sins in Romans chapter 1. He has amplified that all of us do sin in Romans chapter 2, 3, and 4. And he has made it clear that we are all sinners. In uh, commentary on, uh, on Genesis, there's the comment that one rabbi, Berechia, said in the name of Rabbi Shmuel ben Nachman, Though these things were created in their fullness, yet when Adam sinned, they were spoiled, and they will not again return to their perfection until the son of Perez, which is a term for Messiah, comes. Commenting on the verse, these are the toldot, these are the generations of Perez from Ruth chapter 4 and verse 18. There are many things that have been spoiled because of Adam's sin. We live in a spoiled world. Um, another rabbi, Bibi, tried to, which reminds me of Bibi, present prime minister of Israel. Uh, rabbi Bibi, in the name of Rabbi Reuben, said the numerical value of the letter Vav is six. And anyone who knows that, knows Hebrew, knows that. You have a numerical value for every letter. Aleph is one, Beit is two. Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, Hey, Vav um, is number six. That is the numerical number of that Hebrew letter. And it corresponds, he says, to six things that were taken away from us because of Adam and his disobedience. And these are things that are to be restored by Messiah. And he said, Adam's luster, his life, eternal life, his stature, the fruit of the earth, the fruit of the tree, and the lights. Now, we may not necessarily agree with everything Rabbi Bibi said in the name of Rabbi Reuben, etc. But we know that much was taken away from us. We live in a beautiful world. We live in beautiful British Columbia. He gets some of the best. It's a beautiful place. Even in its fallen glory, we see the splendor of God, especially when it's clear on a day like this. 
and you realize God created a beautiful, beautiful world. And we can only imagine what it was like before the fall. And yet so much of the world is so badly damaged today, either by man or by nature. It has fallen apart. Sin has damaged our world. Hard to imagine that it would have been in God's plan for a massive area of northern Africa to turn into absolute desert. God created a beautiful and fruitful world. We have lost a lot. And through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sin. It's an uncomfortable fact that we all face. Our days on this earth are limited. My wife and I have a friend who a couple weeks ago looked in perfect health and was worried about the health of her daughter and grandchild. And today she has passed away. She had a massive stroke and then strokes following it and, uh, and passed away. Life is short. We realize we're not here for that long. We look at what has happened through Adam, and, and we can't blame the Torah. Elsewhere, Rav Shaul explains that Torah exposes our sins. Because it is there, because of the law, we know that we have sinned. But even before the Torah, there was sin. Cain killed Abel. God had to destroy the entire earth in the flood of Noah. Sin was in the world, he says in verse 13. God didn't have a legal system to impute sin, but nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression. The law was there, but sin did precede the law. Rav Shaul makes this clear. Sin pervades. Sin affects us all. And what a tragedy we have. We have a tragedy in that we have inherited this from Adam. We have a tragedy in that the law makes it clear that we have sinned. Sin is not imputed where there is no law. But in verse 18, we realize that, um, rather, verse 20, the law entered that the offense might abound. It became so clear that we are sinners. We've seen it all. And death has come. Verse 14. Death reigned from Adam to Moses. Verse 17, by one man's offense, death reigned through the one. That's the world we live in. One man started it all. One man set this chain in motion. And frankly, I suspect if it hadn't been Adam, it might have been one of his descendants. Who knows? But we are in this situation today where we only have to look around and we can see we live in a fallen, sinful world. And we don't see anyone who absolutely has no sin. But this is where God presents his man, 
the one man who stands for us now. This is our Messiah. Verse 15. The free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Yeshua HaMashiach, abounded to many. And so we could get discouraged, and many people do. Many people think, what a terrible world. And many people say, this world is not my home, when clearly it is because God created us to live on this earth, and yet it's a fallen earth. And we look around, and we see this place is terrible. But Rav Shaul says, but there's so much more. Just as through Adam, sin came, and we ended up in this difficult situation that we find ourselves in. So much more by Yeshua, who is so much greater than Adam, we look and we see that God has done great things and God has brought blessing. And what Rav Shaul is pointing out to us is something that we may not see yet, something that we may not fully understand, but the blessings that come through Yeshua ultimately are greater than the damage ever caused by the fall. We might look at ourselves as a minority in a fallen world, but the day is coming when Messiah is going to rule this world, when this world is going to be governed justly and fairly, and there will be a kingdom of peeps around this world that will bring blessing to all mankind. And when following that time, Evil is finally dealt with once and for all. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. And the eternal blessing as a result of what Messiah Yeshua has done will make all the evil that we have endured and seen on this earth and see on this earth today seem like nothing. Even the Shoah. There will be so much more blessing that it will be incomparable. As Rav Shaul says, the blessings that are to come are not worthy to be compared with the sufferings we endure today. And so Rav Shaul uses the Kol Vachomer argument. Adam, who was he? Really, in some senses, a nobody, just like us, Someone who was the first to sin. Compared to Yeshua, who is the Son of God, the one who has given his life for us, Messiah, who is above all. Messiah Yeshua has introduced grace, the grace of God in verse 15, and the gift by the grace of the one man, Yeshua the Messiah. And, of course, Rav Shaul is not limiting who Yeshua is to being one man, but he is comparing him as man with man, with Adam. There is gift. There is a gift of grace. There is the grace of God that is poured out for us. In verse 17, again, we see, If by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, 
Much more, those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Yeshua HaMashiach. Rav Shaul is firm on grace, and he's firm on the righteousness that comes upon us. It's the righteousness that God designates and gives to us through Messiah, Yeshua. And even more so, we see that God has given us life in verse 17. It is the gift of righteousness which will reign in life. And here is Adam. He is the picture of death. Through him, death has come into our world. Through him, death rules in this world. But God brings life. Through his Messiah. God has given us hope. And God has given us an eternity with him. In the Olam Haba. In the world to come. And so Rav Shaul having made this case. In verses 12 to 17. Having expanded on the difference between Adam and Yeshua. Adam who was just a man to Yeshua who stands for us all, who has done so much more, reiterates in verses 18 and 19 what Messiah Yeshua has done. He wants it to be absolutely clear for the people in Rome and through the Spirit of God for all of us today. Therefore, As through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. There's a principle in scripture that God is gracious. He shows his mercy to thousands upon thousands. There were those who in Ezekiel's day used to say the children should be punished for what the parents did. The parents sinned, the children too suffered. And Ezekiel made it clear that God says no more Will this ever be the case? The son shall not suffer for his father's sins. Each one of us stands on our own. God is righteous. God is faithful. Justification is extended to thousands. It may be true that because of Adam's sin, today we all suffer. It is as if The sin has been passed on and various people have different terms for this state of affairs. Different people have different ways of looking at it, but no one can deny that all of us have sinned. Nevertheless, God's righteousness overrules. The children do not suffer for the sins of the parents. God brings in an economy whereby whoever we are, we have the opportunity to have life, to take part, 
to drink from the fountain, as it were, and to rejoice in what God has done. Through one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. What a beautiful picture. It brings us to Rav Shaul's conclusion. Verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Yeshua, Messiah, our Lord. The law entered so the offense might abound. We've understood that. We've gone over it already. Um, but God's abouse, uh, God's grace abounded so much more. People in history have always been aware of their sinfulness, not only in Western society. It is something that we deal with in the depths of our own souls. In cultures around the world, people try to find ways to make themselves feel better about themselves. Some in the Far East will meditate and, and go off into a, a different plane of existence. Different people will seek to do what is right according to what they are thinking. There are those who today would kill in the name of whom the one they perceive to be God and kill the righteous because they think for themselves that is the righteous thing to do. They want to feel right, but they are doing evil. The law entered that the offense might abound, and, and humanity is afflicted with this awareness of sin. And the beauty of it is that as Rav Shaul preaches this good news to people in Rome and people around the area of Turkey and Macedonia and Greece, as he brings this good news, people are grasping the fact that God's grace is greater, as the song goes, than all my sin. It is greater. So much more so that we are absolutely freed from the pain and from the consequences of sin because God has declared us righteous. And I remember a friend in London um, an Orthodox, actually Hasidic man, who really thought that believers thought that they could do anything they want as a result. We'll get into that on March the 26th, God willing, as we start in Romans chapter 6. But the fact is that there is forgiveness. There is grace from God, no matter who we are no matter what we have done. And this terrible pain that billions around the world are seeking to deal with, this, this sense of unworthiness, the realization that we are sinners, is forgiven because of God's grace. Verse 21, So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life, through Yeshua, Messiah, our Lord, and we can grasp, as we've said, that life, that eternal life that we have. 
Now that we've hopefully understood the chapter, I think Rav Shaul's grammar and his thinking here is sometimes difficult to get a hold of, especially as very few of us really know Greek or anything like that, but even in the Greek it's difficult. As we read it all, we're left with two things, I think, particularly that we can take to heart. One is the fact that we need and, and, and find within ourselves a great thankfulness to God because of what he has done. And as believers in Messiah, we more than anybody else in the world have reason to be thankful. Rav Shaul says elsewhere, be thankful in all things. Give thanks in all things. We have great reason to give thanks. We have the greatest thing to give thanks that could ever be imagined. And so we do not want to fall into that trap of being people who are constantly harping on what is bothering us and the difficulties in life because this, what Messiah has done, is greater than all of that. And our thankfulness is expressed in appreciation. It's not only an internal thing, but as we worship and as we pray, thankfulness expressed as appreciation to God needs to be an integral part of our prayers. This is one of the things that I personally appreciate about Jewish prayer. Because so often our prayers tend to be a list of things that we would like to be from, like to have from God. And sometimes turning to traditional prayers, and you'll also find this in, uh, in other prayer books too, like the Anglican Book of Common Prayer and elsewhere, we are lifted out of thinking about our own situation to being thankful for what God has done, appreciating his glory, appreciating his majesty, appreciating everything that he has done for Israel, for our nation, and for us. And in doing so, coming to a point where our prayers are lifted out of the mundane and we actually come to, to a place where we are face to face with the glory of God, understanding and rejoicing in his majesty. And Rav Shaul gives us great reason to be both thankful and appreciative to our God and Savior. And so let's just conclude with a prayer of appreciation. Avinu Sheva Shamayim, we thank you that you are a great and mighty God. We thank you, as we've read in this chapter, that you sent your son, that your son became our Goel, our Redeemer, and that as much as Adam stood as the, the archetype, archetypical sinner, the one who brought sin into our world, so much more has your son brought your grace into this world and righteousness, and peace, and reconciliation with you. And Lord, we thank you that you are the one who ordained that we should build a mishkan, a tabernacle, where you should be worshipped, and where the blood of bulls and goats should be shed 
for atonement. And we thank you that even that pointed only so much more to the great and glorious sacrifice of Yeshua HaMashiach. And Father, we pray that we might find in our own hearts and in our own prayers room and space to always be thankful in every situation for all that you have done. For your grace is greater than all of our sin. We thank you for this in Yeshua's name. Amen.